welcome back to Gays with Kids, the podcast. I'm your host, David Dodge, the executive editor of Gays with Kids, and today's podcast is coming out on World AIDS Day, which takes place every year on December 1st. So this year, 2021, marks the 40th year anniversary of a now famous headline that ran in the New York Times that said, rare cancer seen in 41 homosexuals. So much has happened since that time. Obviously, we now know that HIV is not a cancer, nor does it just impact queer men. And while an HIV diagnosis back in the 1980s was basically a guaranteed death sentence, today, most of those living with HIV, at least those with proper access to life-saving drugs, lead long, happy, productive lives just like anyone else. We also now have PrEP, which, if taken daily, prevents transmission of the virus. These are pretty unthinkable developments for those that lived at the height of the uh, the pandemic in the 80s and 90s. So it's really not an understatement, I'd say, to say that the world today for gay, bi, and trans men is pretty unrecognizable compared to those that lived at the height of the pandemic, which is remarkable, I'm sure particularly to those that lived through it and are still here to tell their stories. But as we get further away from the days when HIV, whether you were living with the virus or not, truly dominated the lives of gay men in so many ways, from receiving a diagnosis yourself to attending the funerals of countless friends and lovers to just dealing with the social stigma around being gay and its connection to HIV, it's uh, it's all the more important to take moments such as this as on World AIDS Day to remember what life was like back then, to mark how far we've come, and also to note how much further we still have to go, because HIV and AIDS are still with us and they're still very much a part of our community. So with that, I'm really excited that we're going to be joined today on the pod by Dr. Marshall Forstein. And there are truly so many different entry points into this conversation that are relevant uh, to us here at Gays with Kids uh, with Dr. Forstein. He's a psychiatrist and the former chair of the Department of Psychiatry at the Cambridge Health Alliance, which is associated with the Harvard Medical School. And while working with gay men uh, in the 1990s, he really saw his practice become inundated with patients dealing with every aspect of HIV, whether they're living with it themselves um, or just the threat of it. And he really helps center the story of the HIV pandemic within the world of mental health, which is uh, a perspective that I at least hadn't heard that much about before my conversation with Dr. Forstein and, and reading some of his work. Dr. Forstein is also a gay dad, <laughs> too, so that's obviously relevant to us as well. Uh, but Dr. Forstein, along with his husband, became the first gay male couple to adopt in the state of Massachusetts. Uh, and this, again, was at, uh, back in the 1980s at the height of the pandemic. So we're going to hear uh, what, what that was like for him as well. I'm also really thrilled that we're going to be joined today by our very own Brian Rosenberg, who's the co-founder of Gays With Kids, who received his HIV diagnosis back in 1991. Brian has talked and written at length about the role HIV has played in prompting him to launch our site, Gays With Kids. And we, you know, we basically lost a generation of gay men, as he explains, uh, many of whom might otherwise have explored past to parenthood, just as many lesbian and queer women uh, started to do in greater numbers throughout the 1990s and early 2000s. So we're a generation behind in many ways, and the infrastructure needed to navigate the complicated past to parenthood available to queer men really weren't there when a lot of us started to emerge from the grips of this pandemic and fatherhood or creating families were basically the furthest thing from from many of our minds. So uh, I'm really excited to get into all of this with uh, both of these men who are going to talk about this far more eloquently than I will. So we'll be back after a short break with uh, Dr. Forstein and Brian and uh, happy World AIDS Day to everyone. Dr. Marshall Forstein, welcome to the podcast, and Brian Rosenberg, founder of GWK, welcome to the podcast. This is an exciting day for us. We have um, our founder on the pod, even. Um, Thank you. <laughs> of course, of course. So uh, I was just talking with Brian, Dr. Forstein, uh, before this about <laughs> just how many different topics we could get into with you. Um, as a psychiatrist uh, who has worked in mental health treating queer men for, for decades now through the height of the AIDS epidemic, um, to uh, being a gay dad yourself, the first uh, 
you were part of the first male couple to adopt the baby in 1986 in Massachusetts. So uh, lots that we can get into. We're going to get into as much of it as we can. <laughs> uh, but because this is our podcast celebrating World AIDS Day, I want to start just by um, getting a little bit of a history from you. Um, so I, I just read your article um, that was in the Journal of Gay and Lesbian Mental Health, which really is kind of a, an amazing breakdown of the entire crisis. But um, what I found interesting about it is I've never really thought about it or read about it from the uh, perspective of mental health and psychiatry. And, and, uh, and obviously, that was such a big part of all of this. So, uh, so I'm wondering if you can give us like the cliff notes <laughs> uh, so people can hear. We'll, we'll definitely link to this so people can read it themselves, because I do think it's a really fascinating read. Uh, but so just, yeah, can you talk about what it was like um, in those early years, let's say, from, you know, 80s through the 90s uh, in your profession and just kind of how blindsided we all were um, by, by this uh, epidemic? Sure. Um, nothing happens by accident when you really look at it. I was a medical student in the University of Vermont and went out to San Francisco, as most gay men do at some point in their life, uh, to do my internship uh, in 1980. And it's at that point that I met my the man who became my husband, and I dragged him back to the East Coast for my residency training. And, uh, you know, in 1980, just to put this in context, you know, I met him in September. Fortunately for my health, I didn't have a lot of free time during my internship to get out there and, and get into trouble. Uh, we met in 1980, and by that time, based on testing that had been done for hepatitis B, about 10 to 12% of the gay male population in San Francisco was already HIV positive. This was like a, a hidden scourge that we didn't know about. And I and my husband both believed that had we not met each other, both of us could have very well become uh, patients with AIDS and died. Because from 1981, when I started seeing AIDS patients as a resident, until 1995, we didn't have anything to do but care for people in doing palliative care, hospice care, spiritual, emotional care. Um, so the early days were fraught with the whole political scene of, you know, people weren't as gay friendly. There was a lot of homophobia that the AIDS epidemic stirred up. Uh, you know, the 4-H club of homosexuals, Haitians, hemophiliacs, and heroin users, uh, or the AIDS uh, gay-related immune deficiency was one of the names that was attributed to this, really put us in a position of having to counter not only the disease, but all of the psychosocial issues and the politics of the time. I started seeing AIDS patients in 1981 as a resident when the first patients showed up at Mass General Hospital because I was asked as the gay resident to go see a gay person with AIDS. Fortunately, I had become very interested in this weird disease. I'd read up on the cases and I was very engaged with this from the very beginning. And so I started to see patients. And for several years, I was really the only psychiatrist resident at the time who was willing to see patients. And so some of the internal medicine docs and the infectious disease docs were sending patients to me because there was no other psychiatrist willing to take on patients about, uh, they, they didn't know much about the disease. Uh, they didn't actually want to learn a whole lot about the disease. And at that point, as Brian probably remembers, most of the care of people with AIDS fell to the gay and lesbian transgender community at that time. And uh, so we just dug in our heels and started to care for patients. And just to give you an example, in 1984, when I graduated and I opened up a little bit of a private practice, about 80% of the gay men I was seeing in my private practice had AIDS. And so a few years later, I lost almost my entire practice within about a four or five month period to, to AIDS. 
and it was devastating. And I then took on a role as teaching and educating both nationally and locally and got very involved with creating a response by the American Psychiatric Association because we knew that this was a mental health issue. It was also a neuropsychiatric disease. The virus got into the brain. 20% of the people who presented initially had a cognitive disorder. Uh, and so we kept pummeling the APA until they agreed that this was in their domain. And we set up a whole series of committees and commissions that I was very involved with helping to create. Uh, it was a it was like a war zone. Um, I, I think much of the public saw it from afar. We were in the middle of it. Um, we felt very much like if we didn't do it, nobody would take care of our colleagues and our friends. I had I had peers, doctors in all different disciplines who were dying of AIDS. Um, and friends, we lost, uh, you know, we used to keep a list of people who had died because we'd moved back to, from San Francisco to New York, to Boston at that time. So it was a time of tremendous uh, learning about how to just be a psychiatrist for me and then how, how to continue the work I'd been doing even as a medical student on GLBTQ issues. Sure, of course. And of course, you didn't set out to obviously have this be such a huge part of your specialty, but it obviously became one. And, and so you, you touched on this a little bit, but I, I found this so fascinating because I hadn't really conceived of this. You do you do say in your paper that um, HIV and AIDS is a uh, disease of the brain, too. It really it, it can cause cognitive issues. So c can you talk about that a little, just a little bit more and how you saw it manifest? Sure. Well, once, you know, early, even before we identified the virus, which came to be known as HIV, you know, there's an old saying in medicine, if it looks like a duck, walk like a duck, and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. We knew early on that this was not a casually transmitted viral infection, sexually transmitted disease, and bloodborne disease. Because had it been casual, there would have been millions of people very rapidly, you know, if you could get it from toilet seats and kissing, uh, we would have been inundated, as we have been with the COVID pandemic, which is a very different kind of sure, yeah. transmission of a virus. So being a somewhat of a scientist and looking at the data and the epidemiology, I knew that this was not casually transmitted, but we also knew that it got into all the organ systems of the body, including the brain. And the impact it had on the brain was not the kind of cognitive problems that Alzheimer's disease causes, which we call a cortical top of the brain dementia. This was a more subtle place in the brain, what we call the subcortical regions that have to do with things like uh, paying attention, um, word finding, uh, short-term memory. And so people were showing up with these very mild things to start, but it turned out that 20% of our patients died of dementia in the first five to 10 years of the epidemic because it was ravaging their brain. So we had all the epidemiological evidence to convince people in the profession. The problem is it was hard getting psychiatrists initially to take this on as a disease because there was so much else that we were expected to do since there were so few of us doing anything in mental health. Uh, we're really a, a discipline that's underrepresented in medicine. Um, what was tragic about it was having to tell people clinically that they were suffering from a loss of brain function. You know, And I was seeing a lot of very incredibly successful gay men who, you know, they were heads of major corporations, they were, you know, uh, in every profession, and they were musicians and, you know, and even porn stars, it turns out, I, I got to see. Uh, 
and telling them that their brains were going down the tubes was not a, a fun thing to do. Um, no, of course not. I think course. it made me a better doctor, frankly. I yeah, I have no doubt that it, of course it would. Yeah, I mean it's yeah, sink or swim. Yes, that sort of absolutely. Yeah, it's and again, it's it's very hard for I think uh, my generation. I'm 38 um, to fully. You know, you hear these stories, and I you know I try to seek out these stories so you really right. understand it. But it is uh, I think it's something our generation and, and above will um, it will struggle to fully right. ever. Um, comprehend um but uh but so brian i want to uh bring you in here because i i think people are listening to this and wondering what the connection to all of this is to parenthood um i remember very clearly the first time i heard you talk about your reason for founding gays with kids and it was actually probably a year or two into working with you <laughs> uh where i really heard the story for the first time and was incredibly moved by it um and it's something i think a lot of people don't understand uh i mean you're you're hinting at this dr forresting and brian i mean i know you can talk about this at length as well but just this generation of of gay uh, by and trans men, queer men, uh, that we lost that, um, you know, all of the, and you talk about this in your paper a little bit too, Dr. Forstein, about this like revolution right. that was happening, uh, in the seventies and eighties, uh, sex, you know, it was like, a um, we were forming city centers. We were forming like a culture. There was a, a vibrancy to what was happening. And then, you know, out of nowhere, we're smacked down in this really incredibly horrific way for a generation. Right. So, and it's at the same time that our lesbian peers were, um, able to kind of keep writing some form of progress towards starting their own families um uh that that just was not true for so I, i'm gonna let brian brian take this over because he, he says it much better than i do but so just so if you can talk about that the founding of gwk and also just your own experience with this all brand sure so and i want you know uh, i know dr marshall forcing <laughs> back from the 90s um i was working at the fenway community health center which is boston's big lgbt center i was running a program called uh, Living Well Series in which we helped HIV positive men stay healthy. We helped HIV negative men stay negative. I, I had Marshall speak numerous times on our various uh, programs. Um, I will tell you this. I, I, I'd say back then, and I, I've been HIV positive for 30 plus years. Um, and yeah, during the 90s, uh, no one thought, I should say almost no one. There's, I have two caveats to this. Almost no one I knew or knew of thought about fatherhood or parenthood. We were all wondering when we we're going to get AIDS and die. I mean, almost I, I went and, God, I went to some 25 more to more, maybe 30 funerals of guys in their 20s and 30s. And I remember going to a funeral once of a guy who had 40 years old. And we we're all like, oh, my God, he was so old. I only hope I can live as old as him. And so fatherhood was not even on the, on the radar. There are two exceptions to this that I've told people. The first exception is to the gentleman sitting here on this podcast with us, Dr. Marshall Forstein. Uh, he, when I, by the time I met him, he had right. one son, I believe. Right. And then two. Um, and then two, and then he got a second one. And these were out gay men who became dead during all this. And so, Marshall, I'd love to hear you talk about that because, again, that was just not even something. And I've always wanted to be a dad. My my husband of almost 30 years will tell you I've always wanted to be a dad. I just never thought it was possible. And then there's another gentleman who also worked at the Fenway uh, with us. Um, and his his uh, co-parent, Jennifer Firestone, ran the alternative insemination program, which the Fenway had. That was the a gay and lesbian parenting program. It was very, very much geared towards women. Um, and the occasional guy who was going to be basically the, the sperm donor. Uh, and, you know, some were co-parenting, and David, you know all that. Some were not, et cetera. 
Rob and his husband, Rick, very much co-parenting. Um, but those are the only two gay men I know from that time period who, who had kids. I mean, it was just an awful, awful time, um, and no one will be able to... We should never live through right. something like that again. But you, you, if you didn't, you will not be able to imagine what it was like. Of course not. So when I launched Gays with Kids, I really wanted help. By the time I was ready to become a dad, and I became a dad, I knew very few dads out there. And, uh, you know, I'm HIV positive. I be, we, my friend and I created our family through a combination of adoption and surrogacy. I'm the bio dad. It was very difficult for us to figure out how to become dads. And so big part of the reason I launched Gays with Kids was to help others who wanted to go on similar journeys. And that was eight years ago. And this yeah. is, uh, people often ask us why the site is geared exclusively towards gay, bi, and trans men to the exclusion of women. Uh, and even though I think eventually we would love to get to the point where we can be doing uh, you know, all sorts of things for all sorts of people within the, our full acronym, uh, this really is at the, at the heart of it is that we were, we're behind. <laughs> we're very far back, you know, and we're, we're playing catch up now. Um, and you know, now you can't scroll through Instagram with saying, uh, without saying like dozens of, of queer men with their, with their kids. And it is, I mean, yeah. So what is that like for you, Brian, to see so many, um, uh, because you were among the first two, you know, this is, uh, you were, you had children before a lot of other queer men in our, in our community. So what is it like now to see just how extensive it's become? I just recently met a 23 year old gay kid. He's the kid of one of my good friends. And he started asking me about how to become a dad. I like start crying when I hear that because rational, right? Like it wasn't a possibility right. and I still get choked up now. I love that. That's awesome. And I love that, that young gay men today, young queer men today are thinking about parenthood and realize they may not do it, but it's something that they can if they want to. And that's what, you know, Gays with Kids is all about, I hope, is that we inspire them and then help them on the journey. It's interesting. The, the night I met the man who became my husband, I said to him, there are two things I need to know if we're going to have a second date. How do you feel about having kids? And will you learn how to ski? Because those are important things to me. <laughs> and uh, just to put my, my husband uh, was an African-American man who grew up in San Francisco area and uh, had never skied in his life coming from the West Bay, the East Bay. And uh, he said, oh, absolutely, both, yes. So we had a second date, which, of course, led to much more. Uh, <laughs> but it's interesting because before AIDS, when I was working with young gay people, and I went through this myself, one of the, the things I struggled with coming out was how can I be doing this and give up fatherhood? And interesting, my dad's first reaction when I came out to them was, okay, now figure out how to be a father. First thing he said wow. to me, because of wow. his own important role as a dad. So uh, that's the irony of being able to finally do that. So I never wavered in my intention. I just had to figure it out. And to do that, I had to be smarter than everybody else who was trying to say no to me. But I think for many young gay people, even today, the thought of coming out means giving up heterosexual privilege. And we need to really understand that that's a psychological part of the coming out process that's going to go up and down. Now, the, the freedom to be a dad is not the mandate to be a dad. I think what people need is the opportunity to explore that and then make a decision based on what they want and need rather than what they're told they can or can't do. That's what equal access is about in our culture. You know, freedom is about the ability to say yes or no to something like, will I be a dad? And for me and, and my Absolutely. husband, we decided 
early on that we started the process, even during the early days of the AIDS epidemic, he was a psychologist and he was, you know, very heavily involved with taking care of people as well. But we needed to do this because we were looking towards the future. We needed to have a life that was positive, that was going forward. And I cannot tell you how, for us, the having a child and then, uh, so we adopted a baby, three-month-old, and then a 15-year-old gay kid who had run away from home. Um, so we had the experience of adolescence <laughs> right away and uh, a growing child who was um, uh, just an amazing baby. Um, and and what I recognized was how much force to empowering my life being a dad was. Uh, it gave me a purpose in the future uh, as well as letting me spend time with people who needed me professionally and friends who were dying um, that we cared for. But holding those two things together, the pain of loss and the extraordinary excitement of a new life in your family, it was just extraordinary, you know. Like, yeah, I mean, and at, at that time, like, like Brian is saying, um, so today, it, you know, hopefully, uh, the version of your father in today's world, you know, they can just say, oh, go right. to gayswithkids.com. <laughs> right. You can figure out how to right. do that there, right? That's what we're right. aiming to be. Uh, there are resources <laughs> right. now, right? There's there's full guys. We're trying to do everything in our in our right. power to make this not a mystery right. anymore for people, right? Uh, that it was not the no, case for you. It wasn't no. the case for, for Brian either. It really wasn't even the case for me. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that journey? Like, how did you figure? And, and I think tying this to this conversation around HIV and AIDS too, the stigma right. around uh queer people just in general, but uh, particularly uh, with HIV, people, you know, they didn't think it could be a, a father in the best right. of circumstances, but with this uh, illness raging everywhere. So we that. decided we would uh, go through uh, an agency that I won't name. And uh, we went to them and asked them if they would support us doing a gay adoption. And they said the, the new executive director was too cowardly, said, no, we can't risk that. We'll lose funders and all that. So then we went to the best, biggest blue chip agency in Boston, and they said, yeah, let's give it a try. Uh, it turned out that the uh, social worker assigned to our case was a gay man. And because they were under such scrutiny, we ended up going through almost nine months of therapy, what I call our pregnancy. Uh, <laughs> we had to meet with him almost weekly, individually, and as a couple, because he was so terrified that the home study would be so imperfect that it would be denied. We finally said to him, you have enough data. If we're not the right parents, <laughs> nobody ever will be. No one is. So just yeah. move it along. And by that time, uh, <laughs> the head of the agency uh, was delightful and lovely. And she said, absolutely. It turned out that we were then open to having a child and there was a baby that was supposed to come to Boston uh, that was uh, coming to the agency that had refused us initially but the chief social worker there loved us she was a fantastic woman and she told us about this baby and we went down to Georgia to meet with the agency that had custody of this newborn and they were kind of like, oh, really? Well, we, we've never done this before. And we said, here's your chance to make history. Um, and so they said, let's take a gamble. And they were a bunch of uh, kind of rebels themselves. Um, and so they, did, they took our home study. They updated it. 
uh, and we were granted the child. And then we brought it back to Massachusetts to do the interstate compact, which meant going before a judge and having him certified. Now, what I'll remind you is at the time, only one man could be identified as the adoptive father until the law was changed where the other father could uh, claim a second parent status and go through the adjudication. So we initially had one of us be the official dad, although nobody knows which one of us was because we found it was irrelevant, except for the two people that had to come to the court with us. Um, so it was a very difficult time. Uh, we had support from everybody in our families, our neighbors. The head of psychiatry at Cambridge Hospital, where I was working, who was a child psychiatrist, wrote a brilliant letter supporting gay adoption on our behalf. Uh, we had phenomenal people in the public eye give us support. So we got through it, but it was painful to go through all that. Um, and then, then our lives became like parents. <laughs> you know, it's just taking care of kids. So having a newborn, uh, an infant, uh, is a lot of work. And then when he was five, we decided to uh, take in a 15-year-old gay kid who really was homeless, had been staying at a youth shelter. And uh, we asked our five-year-old, this is a story that's still, uh, we asked our five-year-old, we sat down with him and said, so uh, how do you feel about Randy moving in with us as being part of our family since he'd stayed with us for a couple of days to give him a place till he had the next possibility. And my five-year-old, our five-year-old looks at us and scrunches up his face and says, well, you know, dads, when my parents died and you made me a family, we got to do the same thing for Randy. Oh, she's at, five years old. And that story. tells you his character right there. It tells yeah. you his well, son, you know. And the strength of your parents. Well, so yeah, uh, you know, beautiful. what we've learned is that we've done a lot to help our kids along, but they are individuals that you have no control over. <laughs> and Brian knows what I mean by that. They, they, are, yes. they are people. Uh, they're a little smaller for a while. Um, then they grow bigger. <laughs> uh, but I, I think what we learned was that the world was changing. More and more people were supportive. The public was so further ahead than the politicians. Um, right. yeah. Often the yes. case. Always, yeah. um, but still, and because I know because this comes up on Gays with Kids all the time, I had a, I had a, a, someone reach out to me yesterday and say, thank you for the post you wrote on the mummy word, which my husband wrote, I don't know, six years ago. I don't even know how, he, how this guy found it on Gays with Kids. He said, I had to take it to my daughter's first grade teacher and and principal because they need to be educated. So, I mean, there was there were no organizations back then when you were sending your kids to school uh, to help you out there. So yeah, yeah we had to go into every school a sort of a, a preemptive uh, first attack. We had to go in and make sure that it was going to be safe, that the school and the teachers were going to be supportive. In, as an example, he was in daycare when he was really small, um, and they were having days where they would talk about families. And Scott would spin all of these different uh, ideas about who his family was. And he'd talk about his new family and his old family, his adoptive family and his biological family. And, uh, you know, the, the head of the school called me and said, Marshall, um, 
what about this fantasy that Scott's been elaborating about going to Mexico where he had his father had come from Mexico and standing on the street corner in Mexico City and waiting till his father passed by, which for a four-year-old was a perfectly logical thing to think about, right? right? And we said, well, let him spin whatever fantasies he needs to. You know, uh, what's the harm? He knows what has happened. He's trying to work through in his own mind what it means for him to be adopted. We've talked openly about all of this. Um, and they just wanted permission from us to allow him to spin these fantasies and to talk with the other kids about it. And uh, I appreciated that they were concerned about the impact on my son from doing this. Uh, so I think, you know, some work ahead of time. Uh, we've learned a lot that we've shared generation. The, the men now having children, unfortunately, aren't getting as much support from men who had children 10, 15 years ago because there isn't, I think Edgewood Kids is the first chance for people to link up. It wasn't there before. Right. I mean, again, we we have been fathers going back to the 80s and, and right. earlier, you know, so it's, it's just, uh, you're right, there hasn't been like a great kind of central place That's to right. be trying to store this institutional knowledge. So I'm, I'm, again, I'm hoping that that is what Gays with Kids is becoming for folks. You, you've talked beautifully about um, bringing life into the world at the same time that you're surrounded by right. so much death and dealing uh, with all of that in your, in your profession and your personal life, obviously. Your experience as a clinician of queer men that you were treating who were obviously dying or towards now, like you're saying, like, so much of your work is helping people realize that they can become dads. What has that trajectory been like in your career? I mean, I can only imagine it's just been um, a whiplash. Well, I think it's a miracle that people who got infected, who lived long enough to get the triple treatment, the new antivirals, revolutionized the whole epidemic. For those people who could take the meds, who had access to meds, and we're very fortunate in this country to have the access that so many so many gay men throughout the world who have HIV do not have access to medications, and they're dying still. The death to age is still one of the most profound things in many of the countries. Uh, for me, I was seeing men who were, we, saw, we had men, we had men at the Fenway, and Byron will remember this, that were at death's door when the triple therapy came out, and it was like what we termed the Lazarus syndrome, people coming back from the dead, yes. developing Absolutely. these incredible forward-looking lives um, so my own experience of the epidemic shifted from palliative care, hospice care, death and dying, to helping people feel entitled to live, to how do we go forward when I've prepared myself. I had so many gay men in my practice say, I have spent so much time preparing to die. I don't know how to prepare to go forward with my life. And that's why they were back in therapy with me. But I've ha I have men in my practice now who have been treating for depression uh, in, on and off with 30 years, um, who have made a life, um, had to think about, you know, the fact that they've been given a second chance. Uh, there's a book called Borrowed Time uh, that, that really speaks about how we all live on borrowed time. Um, as I get older, I recognize that even more and more. Um, and that the purpose of life is to live it. And so what we do in the clinical work is we help people assess where are they at? What are the resistance to change? What do they want out of their life? What do we do with the fears that they might get or not get what they want? How do we take one step in front of the other? Uh, for me, I have learned so much from my patients. It's been an education way beyond what I got in my training. Um, and I owe them a debt of gratitude for all the wisdom that they imparted to me. One of the first patients I had who was dying actually 
sat me down and said, you know, I know that you're really sad and that I'm going to die, but you're not guilty. You didn't give me this disease and you better get over it. Otherwise, you won't be able to help any other patient. <laughs> that was wow. powerful. Wow. Powerful. Yeah. No. Yeah. I have Absolutely. a question for you, if you don't mind. Something that I certainly have, have I wouldn't say struggled with, but have dealt with over the years, which is just, you know, why didn't I die? And Absolutely. Um, I lost best yep. friends. We used to hang out all together. We joke around. Who's got doctor's appointments? What are you doing? And here I am all these years later, but Leo's not. Danny's not. So in, in that paper that you're referencing, I talk about a patient who said it was like we were all out in the field enjoying life and for the first time embracing our sexuality. And then somebody came by with a Gatling gun and mowed everybody down except I was standing. And he spent the next 20 years in therapy with me trying to understand his survival. Um, and unfortunately, um, he didn't feel entitled to live because he had lost so many friends. And it was depression which we treated. It was, but it was all existential stuff. You know, my, my talking with patients, we talk about the existential reality of life and the unpredictability. I think people go to different parts of their life. Some go to a spiritual place. Some people will say things like, I have to find a place where I understand what my purpose in living is about. Um, I've seen people make miraculous changes in their lives. One guy who was hooked on drugs and having a lot of anonymous sex uh, turned all of that around and started to work in a soup kitchen feeding homeless people. And he actually became one of the most spiritual uh, people I've ever met. Um, he basically asked the question, Brian, why am I alive? And uh, he had to find a reason, which is what we all have to do. Um, yeah. And and the universe doesn't care about us. You know, there's a wonderful poem that says, a man said to the universe, sir, I exist. The universe replied, that, however, has not created in me a sense of obligation. In your private practice test, you're, you're a volunteer uh, faculty at the Cambridge Health Alliance, but you're, you're still right. in private practice and still seeing presumably a lot of queer yeah. men in your practice. Um, so what are the big, what are people talking about today versus uh, versus them? What are the big issues facing our community today from your perspective? Well, I, I think I would put it into two categories. One is the same issues that every person alive deals with, anxiety, depression, work performance, job, what do I want to do? For the younger gay men, most of them are not dealing so much with coming out as they are with what do I want to do with my life? Um, uh, or they're falling in love with someone and it scares the hell out of them and they want some help and how to tolerate and figure out what a reasonable approach is. Um, I'm still seeing young people coming out who are, are struggling with the whole question of abandonment by families because of religious or cultural issues. Um, I see a number of uh, dual minorities, people of color who are also sexual minorities, and they have sp special issues. I'm particularly interested in that because my husband was a, a man of color, and uh, uh, he taught me an incredible amount about the whole racial uh, chasm. Um, other things that we talk about is parenting. Like uh, for young people, it's should I, could I, will I? For And then I see men who have kids. I see heterosexual men who are coming out with kids. 
and wanting to know how do I talk to my teenagers about it. Um, one interesting example is a man who at uh, 45 came out to his wife and kids that he was gay um, and uh, had a very close relationship with his wife and with his uh, kids. His wife was relieved that she wasn't competing with another woman. Uh, the kids were <laughs> relieved in some way because it explained a lot of the distance that they felt between he and his wife. Um, but his son, who was 14 at the time, uh, was pulling back a little bit from the kind of stuff they would do together. And uh, he came to me and said, what should I do? And I said, ask him, talk to him, <laughs> you know, just ask him what's going on. So he did, and the 14-year-old said, well, that uh, because the father had uh, not told him how what his early history was like, so the kid said, "Well, Dad, if you didn't know till you were forty-five that you were gay, do I have to wait all those years before I know?" And and so I said, the father and I worked out the script that he would say, and he said, he said to his son, "Look, I told your grandmother that I was gay, and she said, no, you're not. I was seventeen at the time. I knew I was gay from before I was your age." But given our family and all sorts of craziness, I was pushed back into the closet and married your mom, who I adored and loved. And of course, I'm grateful that we had the two of you. And he, you know, um, and then he said, and based on the Playboy magazines I find under your bed, I don't think there's a doubt about your sexual orientation. And the son <laughs> laughed and said, and he said, look, if you're straight, if you're gay, I don't care. Just be who you are. And that solved the whole problem. Just talking. The biggest problem I see with gay men is that they've been socialized to be men before they're socialized to be gay. And uh, we have to learn how to talk. It's sometimes easier to have sex than it is to talk about sex, to talk about love, to talk about relationships. Um, talking something that sometimes women do endlessly before they get to the sex. Uh, and we talk about that with my <laughs> colleagues who are treating women. And I, I've treated some a fair number of lesbians over the years too. Um, I think that uh, gay men have the same issues as the rest of the world and they have newer issues. COVID has really created uh, an isolation that has uh, tr crippled a number of gay men who were just forging out into the world um, and then got this sort of cut off of, of social entanglement. So it's been a tough time for people. So towards specifically kind of the range of um, experiences that you see um, in your in your practice, I, I find it fascinating. I mean, you know, like when you, you're talking about your father and his uh, main concern when right. you came out was that you figure out a way to be a father. That's an incredibly yeah. progressive po uh, position yeah. to be taking back then. Um, I think the more common experience was family rejection right. or the closet or what, you know, that was... That's what Absolutely. people were doing today, you know, and and I don't want to like sugarcoat the fact that you know we at Gays with Kids uh, talk a lot about the foster care system and like the overrepresentation yeah. of queer youth in the foster care system because they continue to be rejected by their families. Um, so this isn't in any yeah. way to say that these issues are gone; they're still with us, and in a lot of ways, people don't really recognize um, and talk about it enough. Um, but you're also seeing. Uh, people throwing coming out parties for right. their kids <laughs> when they come out at 13, 14, whatever age, you know, and it's uh, so there, I, I, and I assume you see kind of the whole spectrum and, and, and where people are at in their uh, discovery of their identity and sexual right. uh, orientation and gender identity. I must, I must find, I mean, it must be really fascinating to see that based on where you've come. In Absolutely. And I think there's beginning to, to be a, 
a cohort of gay families that are talking to each other about raising kids where there are some special concerns, how to talk to schools, you know, um, religious organizations are another big area for possible uh, concern. Um, I think also geography, one would think that geography has a lot to do with whether it's comfortable or not, but I've been pleasantly surprised by some of my friends in Tennessee and Alabama who have found adopting a child or surrogating a child, having a, a alternative dissemination, that they've been equally well accepted into the neighborhood. You know, in 1986, when we adopted our, our child, the neighborhood I live in, in Jamaica Plain, threw us a welcoming party for our son. Oh, and wow. that was extraordinary, that all of our neighbors and friends came. We actually had more resistance from our gay friends, not our close gay friends who were on our side all the time, but, you know, our acquaintances in the gay community uh, didn't know what to do with us. Didn't get it. They just yeah. didn't know. Do we invite them to the next party or not? You know. Right. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They yeah. didn't get it. Yeah, I remember. I remember when you had a, and people say, well, "I don't understand <laughs> right. that." What do you What do you mean he's got right. a kid? Right. But I, I, I do think that that is still. I mean, it's much different now because so many more queer men, queer people generally do have yeah. children. But that's still very much a. Uh, you know, we we've featured plenty of uh, people on our site that talk about not feeling gay anymore once they yeah. have children. Yes. They're being kind of assumed into, and if they may be in a rural society or like in a in a smaller town that accepts them, but it's still. Uh, you're you're feeling disconnected from a community that's uh, half of who is questioning what the hell you're right. doing, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. So, yeah, I assume you see I, I think the too. other issue, and Brian, I, it may have changed a bit, but I remember when I would take uh, my child when he was a baby, uh, you know, on Thursday mornings, I would walk up and we'd go to a place and I'd get some coffee and a croissant and I'd give him his bottle or whatever. And women had a very hard time accepting that men could be Sing, uh, primary parents you know uh, I was sitting there with him one morning and uh, he was getting a little fussy and you know I checked his diaper I fed him I think he was just you know restless or whatever uh, and this 20 year old young woman comes over to me and says oh maybe he's wet or he's tired and I'm looking at her going oh, why didn't I think about those things? <laughs> you know, or, or I'd be on the street in the stroller and uh, you know People would come up and say, oh, he's so cute. Uh, where's his mother? And I would say, oh, he doesn't have a mother. He has two dads. And they would go, oh, oh. And they'd walk away as quickly as they could. They just didn't know what to do with that. Yeah. So, Marsha, you should look up, um, and everyone listening should look up the video, Things People Ask Gay Dads on YouTube. Oh, I will. We created one of the our first year of Gays with Kids. You'll see my family starring in it. Um, I had had enough, so, you know, we would put on quite a show. It was Bird and myself. We had three kids under the age yeah. of two and a chihuahua. So as you can imagine, walking around, everyone stalked and, and had... And, and we and that, that video, Things People Ask Gay Dads, every scenario happened to us. And you've just pointed out one yeah. or two of them yourself. So, and from what I gather, Marshall, it still happens. Yes, and, and I understand. You know, I, I've tried to understand psychologically the how women perceive parents, gay parents, gay male parents. It's, it, they don't have the same yeah. issue with lesbians having babies um, because women have babies, right? Um, but And I think what it's about is parenting is the last bastion of where women have really primary purpose. 
in the society that denigrates women and puts them into a second-class citizenship. God, we only gave them a vote 100 years ago. I mean, you know. Yeah. So I think watching men usurp that primary privilege is a, a thing that women have had to learn how to accept. Um, you know, if I'm in a room with um, both genders with a baby, it's more often the women that will come up and ask me, would you like me to hold him? Would you like me to change him? As though somehow I don't know how to do any of those things. Uh, right. And the men feel less entitled to take on that role. Now, I think even among Maybe. straight couples, I've noticed men are changing their role for the better. And that's wonderful Correct. to see. Agreed. Agreed. I think not only not only are they is it changing, but it's a huge, at least among yes. progressive yeah. um, households, it is a huge Huge. topic of conversation uh, and something that they check in about. Not not to say, I mean, I think COVID, again, there's been plenty of reporting that has shown that um, people kind of had to fall back into gender roles or didn't have to, but that's what happened. Women were once again dealing with more childcare than than the men. But, you know, I think all of this is just an example of how, you know, misogyny and the patriarchy impact everyone, not just women, but that men are impacted by it too, that we're, you know, we have these gender roles that we're expected to perform. And, uh, and when we step outside of that in any way, we're very quickly like, you know, someone slaps us on the hand and does this to go back. Uh, and we are, yeah, we're still very much dealing with, um, with that today. I kind of deal with this in a, in, in my, so I'm a co-parent with a lesbian couple. Um, I'm, I'm a donor. And so when I'm up there, um, they live in Connecticut. Uh, but when I go up to spend some time there and I'm out with just maybe one of the moms and the three kids, I all of a sudden am being perceived as this like hetero, like part of a heterosexual family. And it makes, drives me yeah. crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, I want to wear like a big rainbow flag or something or like glitter or something, you know, just so people know that I'm like, no, no, I'm not one of you. Um, <laughs> So at least in some ways, you know, maybe that's uh, changing. <laughs> you know, it's going to, it's <laughs> For when I think, you know, when I was 12 and thinking and I was knew I was gay, if I go back to when I was 12 and I think about what we've accomplished in the time frame, uh, it's been amazing. Remarkable. Yeah. Young really people is. don't have that perspective. So we have to give it to them. And I'm no less impatient than I was then. I still want more and more change, for sure. I'm still a kid yeah. of the 60s. But I also am grateful for the progress we have made. And we need to keep pushing with the same ways that we've gotten our freedom. So, No, and it, it is, um, it's upsetting to hear from uh, you three, you know, I think during the Stonewall anniversary, um, uh, yeah. two years ago, just the number of people, young people I would talk to that really didn't know what it was or what, you know, where it came from. So, but I wanted to end on this question exactly. So uh, thank you for bringing it here. But uh, to the two of you, what, um, given your life experiences, given your professional experiences, what do you want to say to young queer men today? What do you, what do they need to know about this time in their history? And what do you want, what do you hope for their future? And why don't we, we'll uh, start with you, Brian, so we can give Dr. Forstein the last, uh, last word. Sorry to put you on the spot. <laughs> oh, I am not going to be able to compete with Marshall Forstein on this one. So on um, that was the thing. Um, I just hope for a world where they can live, the, that they're comfortable and confident to live their authentic lives. And that's really what it's all about at the end of the day. Just to be happy and healthy and, and live the way they should be and not let anyone tell them anything otherwise. Absolutely. Um, how about you? Dr. I think that's perfect. I, I think I would say to young people, think about making acquaintances and friends with inter cross generations because we have a lot to learn from you and you have a lot to learn from us and don't assume that the interests across generations is always anything but uh, platonic and uh, generous um, we have a lot 
of experience in the world to teach you how to be advocates, how to get further along. You know, we are all warriors in the same war against oppression. Um, and we're on your side. And uh, let's talk. Let's keep talking with each other and sharing our concerns and formulating a plan to go forward. The world is not finished being what it can be. Very well, very well put. Uh, Dr. Forstein, I'm sure this will not be the last time we have you on um, or work with you. It's been a real pleasure to uh, to sit with you, talk uh, with you about this all today. Um, Brian as well, thank you both for being here um, and happy World AIDS Day. Everyone. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you, Marshall. It was great Same to here. See you. Take care.